Disclaimer, this content is meant for information only and not as a diagnosis or medical treatment for any condition. If you or a loved one needs help, please seek out a qualified medical professional for assistance. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Katie Osta, BSN, RN, IBCLC, and infant feeding specialist. Quench your thirst for knowledge and travel with me across the nation to discover, learn, collaborate, and better serve clients from all over the globe. Let's ride and thrive together. Today on the podcast is Dale Amanda Tyler, a board-certified ornithologist, head and neck surgeon, fellowship trained in complex pediatric ornithology. She's Canadian, moved to the U.S. after completing medical school in 2002. She has been actively involved in the care of tethered oral tissues since 2007. Dale has a Master of Public Health with a thesis topic on the impact of phrenotomy on feeding and speech in children. She has set up several tongue-tie programs in academic and private practice and is currently the co-owner of Riviera ENT in Santa Barbara, California. She treats at least a dozen people of all ages each week with tongue and lip ties along with her general ENT practice and speaks nationally on the topic. She has also been one of few ENTs that are vocal advocates of treating tongue and lip ties and has published in support of treating this problem. So join me in welcoming Dale today. I want to start with your education, Dale, because you're so uniquely educated and talented. Like just looking at your CV, it's like, wow. I mean, medical school, residency, fellowship, and then a master's in public health and all over the world. Like, yeah. Yeah. So you got around and traveled. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, for the most part, I'm, you know, uh, North America based. I'm Canadian. So I, you know, born and raised there and I went to medical school in Canada and um, I completed that in 2002. And then I moved to the United States. I was at the University of Florida for five years. I did my residency, you know, and as it, you know, related to tongue tie, I, I learned how to attack a frenulum, but in, in no way did I really learn anything about ankyloglossia other than maybe address the anterior ties and, and that's about it. And, you know, sometimes it can have an effect with feeding or speech, but very unclear. And then I, I was, uh, I moved to San Diego to do a two-year fellowship in pediatric ENT, and that's where I really came to learn about the impact of tongue ties, about the concept of anterior versus posterior, not even really learning about lips at the time from 2007-2009. It was sort of um, a little bit of a black box still, but you know, at least I, I came to really get a deep appreciation of the problem then and started looking at doing a Master of Public Health and started thinking about a topic that, you know, selecting the topic of ankyloglossia of phrenotomy for my thesis. And from there, I started working exclusively as a pediatric ENT in the academic world. I was in Nashville at Vanderbilt, and that's where I was remotely actually doing a master of public health thesis or master of public health uh, degree with the University of Liverpool. So it's a British school. And the thing that was interesting about it was that I was the only one, I think, from North America in the entire program. Most of the individuals were working for the WHO or heading up maternal fetal programs in Africa or Afghanistan or wherever it was. So really kind of multinational. And then after that, I, I moved back to California and worked in the private practice world. So I sort of have had training and experience in different countries in the academic side and in the private practice side and really got to see a broad experience of the 
the problem of, of tethered oral tissue of tongue tie. And also, um, you know, through it all and through life experience and having kids, I've got to see it on the patient side as well. What would, what did that master's of public health do to you? Like, how is that a different, as someone who doesn't have the experience, how is that different program than when you already had medical school, you already had to, you know, residents and, and a fellowship? Yeah. Like, how does that yeah, I think I'm a lifelong learner. <laughs> I, I always I think, think of like, that. you know, what my next degree will be, which I think my husband would kill me if I, if that was any time in the near future. But I do think that there's probably more degrees in my future because I see how important the business of medicine is or some other, you know, policy making aspects of medicine and in, in trying to affect change, recognizing that it's much better to do it from a policy and on a larger, broader scale than just kind of micro in your own community. The Master of Public Health, I think what I was thinking it was going to give me is not necessarily what it ended up giving me. I think I went in, you know, pondering, well, what if something happened to me and I couldn't be a surgeon anymore? And, you know, well, maybe if I got burned out, maybe I could head up an NGO or do something, have something some sort of skill that um, I wouldn't have necessarily learned in medical school to like give me a broader range of understanding on another career if I needed it. But what I came to learn really was that it's hard for me as one person to do much to make a change, even to publish one paper or, you know, to treat tons of patients in a community or in a region. But what really is important is this concept of policy of empowering women, of giving equality, of providing education. And that really, as a doctor, I was much less helpful, you know, as a policymaker or otherwise. So that's where I start to try to move towards changing policies, because that's what some of my, my Master of Public Health experience has taught me is that it's not just, oh, uh, I'm going to understand more about treating COVID in my community or whatnot. It's more about to really change disease, there's so many socioeconomic factors to disease that is more important and is more important in really changing the world for a better place. Absolutely. I would totally agree. And I, I see what you're saying that you can make a difference in your community here as a provider, but that if you change policy, you can hopefully affect right many, many more communities and, and widespread yeah, I mean, and this is probably getting into other other areas you're going to go into after, but, you know, specifically as it p- pertains to my specialty, when you look at the concept of tongue ties and how it affects feeding and speech and how it should be treated, the sad reality is the ENTs have taken a stance that is adversarial and that is minimizing of the problem of ankyloglossia and of lip ties, and that is really, you know, when you look at some of their clinical consensus statement, it really handcuffs parents and other practitioners in what supposedly is the right thing to do. And so I think that's where it's really struck me the most is I need to change at a higher level than just what some NGOs are thinking. I have to to go above, you know, I have to fight the policy of my own specialty, which we've tried to do. I, you know, had to write a rebuttal or I, I wrote a rebuttal with Dr. Bobby Gahiri and Dr. Serge Zaghi to this consensus statement that came out that was very biased, that did not include anyone who was particularly interested and 
that had a different view on the topic than, than everyone they selected. And, you know, trying to fight to get that published was painful just to get a rebuttal. And they, they watered it down to almost nothing. But that's what I feel my role is, is to at least fight my own specialty and to try to get change in, in my specialties world. Because, you know, for the most part, the dentists have started to embrace this and certainly lactation consultants and it's been a much slower acceptance rate in, in the pedi- pediatric world, in, you know, the ENT yeah, world. Yeah. yeah. That's actually, I'd say my number one question for you is when I think about different health problems we can have and different illnesses and even birth defects and issues, you think about something, I'll think about something like comparing this to hearing loss. We screen all babies for hearing loss because we know that early intervention creates better results, whether they choose to go with cochlears or whether they choose to do sign language, it doesn't matter what their path is, but they get a better result by having early intervention, right? And early support. Hearing loss is a measurable physical issue. A tongue tie is a measurable physical issue. Like this isn't some imaginary thing. I don't, yeah. part of me doesn't understand why, why is it so polarizing? How, how is there so much opinion you wouldn't have someone yeah. have an opinion on whether or not a baby has hearing loss after a screen. You know, it's there's a lot of subjectivity in medicine. I mean, most of what we do in ENT, they're subjective, apart from say if you have cancer or don't have cancer. You know, when you look at how nasal congestion is treated and and septal deviation, you know, 80% of people have a deviated septum, 80% of people don't need septoplasty, but you don't vilify a doctor for performing septoplasty, you know, second guess them and say that they're money grubbing, you know, if they feel that that's the appropriate treatment for the patient. And there are not studies that say, well, it has to be this number of millimeters and there's not all this, but yet seemingly we're okay. When the doctor says, it's okay, this is what I want to perform. This is what you need. No one just gets up in arms about it. But it does strike me as very suspicious that we've taken the one entity that involves, you know, mothers and babies and have in many ways politicized it. And so when you look at the history of, of all of it, you know, midwives hundreds of years ago had one long fingernail and clipped it. And and that is, you know, there are paintings that document this, there's writings that document this. And, you know, suspiciously, whenever it was, I think the 1850s, when commercial formula and bottle sterilization techniques became kind of more mainstream, then all of a sudden that along with formula lobbies, you know, seemed to shunt all of the children who are having issues with these ties to these other non-breast options. And only when breast is best came about and, you know, moms were being told, you know, you have to breastfeed your babies and they started having problems. Did this some specter of like, well, maybe there's something going on here, but it was still minimized. It was still the mothers were still saying, oh, you're not trying hard enough. Use a nipple shield, do this, do that. And my personal belief is the only reason that we've even made it this far is because of social media, you know, with Facebook or other sites, California or other state tongue tie and lip tie support groups that mothers have banded together, that lactation consultants, they've formed communities that have empowered them to say, no, you're not going to the right provider. No, you need to ask these questions. No, you need to say these things to provide them some kind of ammunition against a community, a medical community that has been very happy to tell mothers forever that they just need to toughen up. 
Um, and so we never tell people they need to toughen up and breathe a little bit better, you know, from a septoplasty problem or just, you know, don't worry so much about your goiter. It's fine. You know, we never minimize anything else. So it just, it strikes me as extremely political and, and frankly, anti-woman to minimize this severe problem, which results in, you know, maternal and infant problems, you know, from across the board. And it sets up these mothers for anxiety and depression and other things for no fault of their own. They're trying to feed their babies. And this is an anatomic problem that we are negating. And so I just, I think it's, it's wrong and it's bad and there's no good excuse for it other than we've been wrong all along and we've just been digging in our heels. And people just don't want to admit that they're wrong and change their ways. But yeah, it's, it's interesting to me how polarizing I can understand a provider not knowing about it. You know, pediatricians have 18 years to cover. They can't know everything. They're not infant feeding specialists. I get it. You know, that's my role. They can't do everything. I don't expect them to, but what I don't yeah. understand is the polarizing and the, I mean, ENT should be the specialist of the ears and nose and mouth and throat and all of these things. We should not propagate, you know, propaganda against a real problem. And I, I think that one of the major issues that has come up that has made the ENTs dig their feet even further in is that for the most part, the dentists have started to embrace it. And so it provides some kind of odd enemy face that, you know, the dentists are the bad guys, you know, and, and money grubbing and looking for a buck to treat this problem. And, and of course, across the spectrum, there's always doctors that are going to do too much. There's always people that are going to monetize whatever treatment it is. And, and that's not good. That's bad. But the majority of people who thoughtfully treat this problem do not just, you know, cut and go. I mean, every one of my new patient appointments for this is 45 minutes. That's a lot of doctor time. And I sit there and I do it again and again, because I catch so many other problems, you know, with the mothers and different mental health problems they may be having going along with it. I catch other health issues of the babies and I would do a disservice to them if I didn't give them the time but I certainly could make more money doing a sinus procedure or pushing people through, but that's the people who do this thoughtfully, they should be commended. They shouldn't be vilified. Right. And I think the pediatric dentist that I've spoken to said they had thriving pediatric dentist practices. And they said, you know, realistically and honestly, it's not a poor specialty. They were making decent money and with less headache, less insurance, less, vilifying less negativity and it was an easier thing to do that they've gone down this path because of different reasons you know some of them it was a personal path like dr jesse Whitcoffin at colorado tongue tie you know he said he had a very thriving pediatric dental practice and sold it to open colorado tongue tie because after his tongue was released he really felt passionate that everyone should be able to get care you know, and then there's others who, you know, they had a family member go through it and things like this. But for the most part, people in this specialty have some sort of deep reasoning for it, even if it's just to care for a problem, right? Just to, that they see it yeah. and they feel like they have the ability. I don't see it as that much different as the people who are pediatricians. I mean, how many money grubbing pediatricians are there out there? These are people that enjoy caring for, you know, children and families at vulnerable times. And it's really not that different. You require a sense of compassion to do this, to do it well, you know, and it's just, 
it's sad to me that that's the state of affairs that we're in. And that's what I strive to fight against. I'm on the board of governors of the American Academy of Otolaryngology. And honestly, part of that is so that I have a seat at the table that if I hear things going on, that at least I can fight it because I don't think that that small rebuttal that we published would have happened if I didn't talk to the editor and have some sort of, you know, name behind me. It doesn't matter that I'm not Dr. Gahiri who's published as much as he had. He didn't have a seat at the table and that's wrong. It's always wrong, but that's the reality of the world is if you do not have any sort of access to making this policy, you, you have nothing. And it doesn't matter if you have a giant social media following or that you give courses or that, you know, the moms all love you. None of that matters. That's, that is what I've come to learn. If you're not a seat at the table, you're not a voice. And that's how we wind up with this problem for so many women that women for a long time haven't had that voice. We haven't had a seat at the table. And so, you know, healthcare for men's issues gets pushed through much easier than women's issues. And we're just, and I feel like we're also you know, women's health issues is, is such a band-aid thing sometimes. I mean, you know, focusing on, I was just talking this morning with Katrina Mitchell and she's talking about how we focus on things like getting the breast pumps and how that's so wonderful for healthcare. And yet we're completely negating the fact that we don't have appropriate family leave. Like that's where we should be focusing. Don't just hand a woman a breast pump and say, okay, now you're great. You can go back to work at six weeks. It's like, no, how about we actually support families? Right. And we give them appropriate fourth trimester care. But it's I mean, a, all of it is, is so important because there's just so many ramifications. And, you know, I've talked about this before, but a, a very large amount of the patients I treat come from very humble backgrounds and they don't have much money. And the children, I feel like those children are most benefiting from these types of procedures, because if I can get them to nurse properly, then they're not being pushed to a bottle and potentially overfed and then not becoming obese and then not developing diabetes and high blood pressure at eight years of age. And and maybe they'll live for decades longer simply because they were able to breastfeed. And I don't think that breastfeeding is a full panacea. And I I support a woman's choice to feed their baby in whatever way they want to. But there are many women that want to breastfeed that are unable to do so because potentially sometimes, you know, very unfair leave policies and and the work that they are, are, you know, in that, that they won't, that their employers won't work with them to be able to accomplish that. But if we don't give the women the opportunity to nurse because their babies are having anatomic problems that are highly fixable. If we if we don't fix that, then we are potentially creating health problems that will shorten their babies' lives in the future. And that to me is just wrong. Right. But you said these are a lot of the clients you see are lower socioeconomic and so they're sometimes not seen as much, right? Their problems and everything else. And it's it's really terrible because the more that it's like they're already starting behind right behind the start line. Like right. they're way back already. Right. And they're not getting the same opportunities. And when they get to school, they may not get the same opportunities and they may not have all the same options. And so exactly you're trying to, to just give them to a better start. It. You know, when you look, if I had to choose, you know, two kids and I only had one operating room that were having some speech difficulties then I would choose, you know, I wouldn't want to make that choice, but I would choose the child who really 
came from limited means because they may not get speech therapy or extra thing. They may be on the borderline of qualifying. And that might be the difference between them being in the middle of the class or the lower end of the class or the upper end of the class. Whereas the child who has financial means and the parent involvement because they don't have to work two jobs, do whatever it would be, they get, you know, extra academic care and tutors and extra therapy and it's just, it's very lopsided and unfair. And I feel like we really need to look at the problems that people of lower socioeconomic strata face and treat them more aggressively so that we can have equality and, you know, equity. Right. Because the health problems that we know are happening so early, like you said, disease and high blood pressure, hypertension, diabetes, all these things are happening way too soon. Right. And it's it's particularly unfortunate, you know, and I think that the pandemic has really opened a lot of people's eyes about just seeing the rates of uh, childhood obesity soaring and all these other things soaring. You know, we just, we need to give these kids the best opportunity early on and to keep going with that. And so I I just feel like we don't do a good enough job at ensuring that our least advantaged people have equal access. Definitely. It would be nice to have a much more fair medical system that was not dependent on your income and that people could just... But on the plus side, you know, when I do look at those patients, they get sent to me by really amazing pediatricians that their practices are largely filled with children like that. And so they recognize that this is a problem. And, you know, lately I've had some more pediatricians send me children who are a year old or 18 months old that have lip ties that have been missed. And maybe they nursed okay, or maybe they just went to a bottle right away. And so the tongue was missed. But in in terms of lip ties, you know, a lot of them have decay of their upper teeth. And Mm -hmm. how many children do you see with all the caps or teeth that have been extracted or whatnot? Now there's starting to be a recognition, well, you could just clip that and then they'll let you brush their teeth, you know? And so that's reassuring to me. That's that shows progress that, right. you know, it would be nice to catch it early on. Although right now we don't really have good evidence to say, well, let's preemptively treat these things. So, you know, I don't know that it necessarily would change things, but at least if you start to see mm, this kid's got buildup of the teeth, they need to get sent to ENT. This is the first time I've seen in the last few months, some of these kids coming to me and it's like, this is great because usually they come to me and their teeth are rotting off and it's too late, you know? So I right. think that we are making progress. And when some of these pediatricians who may have been reluctant to send before see that there's real health benefit in addressing these problems, I think that their mind can be opened to it and they can become more willing and, you know, to refer patients and more willing to screen for the problem. Because until we have that, you know, there's, we're always going to have problems. Right. Right. So having a basic you know, basic screener, and it doesn't need to be a complicated big system. It can be a very short thing. I mean, when you, any provider meets a client, they're screening them for a lot of things, depending upon their specialty, but, you know, primary care, they're, you know, generally screening a head to toe body. And it's like, this should just, as you go down, you know, you start at the head and you look in the mouth. Yeah. I mean, and the pediatricians do a really good job at screening, you know, what are you eating? How much TV do you watch? How much physical activity there are? How many vegetables do you eat? You know, um, and so it would be pretty easy to include in your screener things that relate to the mouth and feeding and ties, you know, that it's just a question of, of getting the buy-in to be able to do that. Whereas right now, there's so many pediatric practitioners that, 
you know, minimize it as a problem at all, which is just sad. Well, and there's, there's this phenomenon I call common, not normal. People will say, whether it's, you know, just general public or I'll have providers say, you know, like things like the milk blister, right? Or just really, I mean, like cobblestone, totally blistered lips. Even things like I've had older kids with bruxism, TMJ pain at five and Mm -hmm. mouth breathing and still you go to a provider. And this is kind of ties back into what you're saying about social media advocating for and helping parents know and advocate because you go to provider and you say, Hey, my kid has bronxism. They're, they can't eat raw fruit and vegetables because their jaw pops and they're sleeping with their mouth open. And you're told they're all normal. They'll probably grow out of it. Yeah. It's a problem. You certainly can see on some of these groups, you know, I, I joined some of them to sort of watch and to see what people say. And, you know, people will take a picture and then you'll have 20 people say, oh, that needs to get cut. And it's like, well, are they even having symptoms? Are they, right. You can go too far with that. And, and that's hard, but um, it's not normal to have problems. <laughs> you know, like you should have a healthy kid that maybe they're picky and don't eat certain foods and, you know, maybe they don't want to go to sleep at a certain time, but if they are endlessly having issues with nasal breathing, with feeding, with things taking too long, with terrible bruxism, with whatever it might be, you need to stop and, and listen for a second and think, is there something else going on here? And not just say, well, that's, you know, like, that's okay. Because, you know, especially when parents bring something up, if it's bad enough for the parent to bring it up, then I think it deserves a second look. Right. That would be nice. Yeah, there's definitely still too much out there of the, you know, these things are, are you know, normal, it'll go away. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the hard part with some of these ties is that legitimately, there are some people who are very significantly tied that don't really have symptoms. And so what do you do with that group? You know, I don't think we have a good answer for that. If you don't have problems, I mean, arguably, you do nothing, you know, and that's, and I do see that in some families in whom they may have struggled tremendously with one child and took four months to get a diagnosis and come to me and and then there's a marked improvement after. And then I'll see the next child two years later on the way home from the hospital. They don't even want to try anything. They just want you to cut and you look and you're like, but they're actually, you're actually nursing, you know? So I understand you don't want to go through what you did last time. I get that fully, but we don't have to go after all of these things. You know, we can see, and yes, it's much better to address them early if they're going to cause a problem, but we don't really have a full understanding of, oh yeah, this is going to be a real problem or, you know, you're going to be okay. And so um, I just think we have to keep, if we see that there is tethering, we have to be constantly screening and, and double down on if there are symptoms, let's treat it. But um, it is hard. I, I do think the all or nothing approach is not useful. And it does put us it, it does put us at risk of being uh, seen as being overzealous to address all frenulums when not necessarily all tethered frenulums are symptomatic, right. at least in the way that our current understanding of, you know, the science of this is. And I do struggle quite a lot with some of these buckle ties and these other lower labial ties and things like that, which in my hands, I've not had to address them at all. And and maybe I'm wrong. And maybe, you know, five years from now, I'll just say shame on me for not having done them. But I feel quite strongly if I address the tongue, and then to a lesser extent, the upper lip completely, that I've never really seen problems from some of these other structures. And so it is hard for me when I see a patient that they came to me because the baby's not doing well, and they've had, you know, seven phrenotomies cut or seven in their mouth, like, 
you know, I, I don't understand. I don't understand that either. I, I, I can see where that would lead to concern. Yeah. So it's hard. There, there's a, there's a needle to thread, and I'm so far on the, on the, the side of if I can address the tongue appropriately and any associated upper lip problems, that we should be able to get success along with maybe some body work or whatnot. I just think that when we're going off a photo, for example, like that, that, that we're missing half of the equation. And that's what I'll try to remind people is that it is not just structure, it's structure and function. So are we having functional issues? Are you sending me the photo because you're having nipple pain? The baby is gassy and fussy and has lip blisters and, and the list goes on, you know, on and on. Or are you sending me the photo because your last kid had tongue tie and you just want to roll this one out? Because those are two totally different scenarios. And so the photo or the exam or that anatomy is only half of the picture. We need to see if there's a functional issue. I mean, I think that there are times when you look at something and in your head, you're like, this isn't, this isn't a problem at all. But then you hear of how difficult the family's having. And you have to recognize that in some people, the most subtle problem is causing a huge, you know, medical issue. And in others, what appears to be really severe, you know, tethering is causing nothing. And so I don't know how it susses out if it's half and half or whatnot. I mean, I largely, I base everything on function, but you have to screen the structures and a picture is not a good screen. I mean, you have to get in there and feel it. And anything less than that, I think is very challenging to, to make a diagnosis. Yeah, definitely. It is a hands-on kind of thing in there. So when you talk about policy, what do you think of something like Brazil's tongue-tie assessment policy? Is that something you think would be beneficial? Do you think that it's just kind of scratching the surface of what we want to see here? Or like, how does I that mean, compare I to don't what you know. want? necessarily at this point, what the point of screening someone is, if we have no plan for treatment, you know, that's That's the question. I mean, I think we need to have enough players at the table that recognize this is a real problem, because otherwise, it's going to be the same thing. Well, you know, there is no such thing as posterior tongue tie, there's no this, there's no that, like, if we can't even agree what what we're looking at, or what the appropriate treatment is, you know, you want to address all the tethered fascia, and not just some mucosal disease. Like, I think that we're so muddy here on what we're even looking at, and what the impact is that I think it would be hard, because I feel like the individuals who are doing the screening, if they don't buy into it, they're, they're not going to care. I mean, there, there is some subjectivity to it. It's not like a hearing screen, where it's a machine, and you get an answer, pass or fail, you still have to do this. And if the person is ho-hum about it, or what, they're just going to say that that there's nothing wrong, even if there is, they're just gonna like, I just I don't believe that we are ready for that here, because I don't believe that people buy in enough to it. And so I would love for that. I'd love for, you know, um, what parents who have been through this before say is that we look for five fingers on each hand and five toes on each foot. Why can't they just look at the tongue at birth? You know, I would love to say that, but you can see if there's a finger or toe, you have to feel and check and, and do more for when it's a tongue tie. And if you just kind of looked, you'll miss every posterior tongue tie, you know? And so that's where it's problematic because I could see from a political standpoint, you know, people, doctors are saying, no, there's nothing, there's nothing here, there's nothing there. And when there's pretty severe ones, which is what we often see in clinical practice. So the panacea is universal screening and then addressing those with functional impairment. But do I think that will happen anytime soon? No. (laughs) <laughs> right. I and mean, we still have hospitals where there's yeah. gag orders and you're not 
allowed to even say tongue tie. You're not allowed to even mention it to the parents. You know, it, it's taboo, which is just such a yeah. odd concept. You yeah, know, in I mean, it's really it's really challenging because there are practitioners in my own community. You know, pediatric practitioners in my own community that are opposed to what I do. And, and I know it. And you know, that, that is the situation. There's no way I've tried to change it. I can't change it, but the parents know it too. And so sometimes I'll see a child that absolutely needs it, a baby. And then they'll say, Oh, but we have an appointment with this person uh, a little later on today or tomorrow. Can we just come and see the day after? Cause they don't want to deal with the fallout from the pediatrician getting mad at them for doing what they feel to be a necessary procedure. And that's just terrible. So I don't know how you battle it on a national level or even on a local level, I'm unable to do it. I think that the only way is ongoing science coming out, although it angers me that we require some excessive level of evidence for this one problem that we don't for essentially any other problem. But I, I just feel like we have to do more and, and we are making progress, but it's going to be a while before we get any kind of national health policy when it comes to tongue tie, that's good. Because if anything, the naysayers are winning right now. And I don't, I don't know when that's going to change. Well, and really research is hugely lacking, not just in tongue tie, but in, in lactation and in infancy, it's going to be very hard to do some of these studies with infants. Ethically, when you, for you as a provider, if you know that something is going to be beneficial, yeah. how are you I supposed mean, I to think withhold at this that? point, there is evidence to support the early addressing of these problems. And so any study that is designed that delays the treatment of this problem when the problem has been diagnosed is ethically problematic to me. It also is problematic to just require, again, <laughs> this excessive level of evidence, you know, on this one problem. So it's it's tricky. I think what's really been eye-opening to me in recent years is seeing that there are scientists, authors, doctors, however you want to call it, that have studies that are excellent and they are science. They're the science that's sorely lacking that when they go to try to publish it, it's being suppressed by excellent medical journals that otherwise should publish that it is of excellent quality, that there's no real concerns that it would add to the body of evidence. It would add to the literature. And yet big journals are saying no after dragging along authors. And, and this is when coincidentally individuals on the editorial board are anti-tongue-tied people. And so um, I never really realized that science could be suppressed if there was an excellent article out there. I, I didn't know that that was actually a thing. Right. And so that has been a challenge for someone who likes to look at the evidence. And I like to go where the evidence is in this specific issue when there hasn't been enough evidence to begin with. You sort of have to muddy and, you know, wade through muddy waters. But when there is evidence that I have seen the pre-publication papers that have made it all the way through to final editing, and then all of a sudden the journal says, no, we're not going to publish this. And this, you know, delays publishing and finding another journal for another six or eight months or whatever it is. I mean, they can't have it both ways. They can't say, well, there's no evidence, you can't do it. And then in the same time, suppress evidence that actually exists out there. And so it's hard. It's a really bad problem right now. But I do think much like many other social things that are going on right now, 
the tide is shifting and that people are digging in their heels more right now because we're almost at the point where we're going to make the change and show that what we're saying is true and that we're right. And I just think it's just like many other things socially right now that people are digging in their heels even harder, but that the writing is on the wall that we're right and it's going to change. It's just, I don't know when that will be. Right. The idea that medicine and research is whether it's politically motivated or financially motivated it's it's surprising you know it's like you wouldn't think that that would be the way that it is yeah i mean i think political maybe a strong word in this case i mean i think it's literally ego related i mean it's it's like that level of you know unacceptable just of of just baffling like there's just not a good reason to to take this as a condition that we're gonna rail against like it's just such an irrational thing you know, unless you, you turn it into, well, it's got to be political because it's, it's about mom and babies, you know? And so again and again, what's made me so angry about what my specialty has done is they sit there and they say, well, this is a vulnerable population, this mother infant diet, they're, they're vulnerable and you're preying on this population when really it's, they're a vulnerable population that you are denying care to. And so you're the bad guy. I'm not the bad guy. I'm providing care to these people. I sit there and listen to them cry and suffer and all all of their stories of suffering and try to help them and so many times achieve success in giving them the breastfeeding relationship they want and allowing the child to be nourished and on the growth curve and, you know, breathing properly and not having endless, you know, medicines for a reflux that was because they don't have an appropriate latch. You know, I'm not the bad guy here. And so I think that is the most frustrating maddening part of all of it is I'm not the bad guy here. I am not preying on them. I am advocating for them and helping them. And I will admit that it's a unique time in life. And we are as a new parent, any new parent is overwhelmed and there's a lot to learn. And a postpartum mom is hormonal, but to talk about the population in a vulnerable way like that is pretty demeaning too. Like there's no one fiercer than a new mom or any new parent, like they want the absolute best for their child. And that is what they're trying to do. And to, to put them down and to be like, oh, they need protection and they need, you know, we need, we know it almost implies we know what's best for them. Right. And that that's a very patronizing view to have right. from a more classically male profession to a female, right. you know, it's just very upsetting that women are getting seen in this way. Right. And so that, is what propels me is just they need help. They need an advocate, you know, so historically they've been unable to advocate for themselves. And so we need people on the inside to do it. And so that is what I feel my role is because, you know, another reality of the situation is that the majority of ENTs are male. The majority of doctors historically have been male and of surgeons and of dentists and whomever else. And I am not male. <laughs> you know, I have given birth to children who have had ties that have required the procedure to not be losing weight or not have other issues. And so I can take all of whatever it is that they want then and I can fight back with it. I can take having the educational background and training. I can take being able to use words, being able to sit on boards and have policy. I can take having a uterus and children who've had this problem. And so I think that's my role in all of this, which is sad. I'd like to be a researcher, I guess, or do other things, but this is what it's a better role for me right now for the cause to be in this, you know, in this setting for me. 
It is. You're in a unique position, like you said, to be this advocate for women and for dyads out there who don't have a voice because not only are you a woman and a parent, but you're highly educated woman. And you have a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge that cannot be pushed aside. And so that that gives you more stature and hopefully right. So that's you know, that that's the goal your is that it once we're heard enough and you know the shift has has happened largely amongst moms groups or, or things like that and amongst the lactation world and amongst the dental world, but mm-hmm. it needs to happen on the pediatric side and in the ENT side, you know, absolutely. That's those are the holdout zones still. And so tremendous movement has happened since you know, I really got interested in this in 2007. And so I see that and that's great, but there's just so much work still to be done. Oh yeah. There's definitely a lot still to be done. What do you, what do you recommend for families or even a provider who lives somewhere that there isn't a release provider around, right? When they're not able to get to someone, what is, what do they do? Is there any management that they can do? Or do you recommend that they I mean, some have it assessed at a certain age later? Or, I mean, there's just some people that there's nobody around. It's it's very hard because there are medical deserts all over the country where mm-hmm. there's lack of providers. And, you know, I currently have patients coming many hours away, when, which is sad. You know, I, I, it's sad that there are people that can do what I do. They just don't care to learn, you know, that are all over the place. And so, you know, I use a laser for what I do. I have this, you know, very expensive tool that is nothing but a tool. And I, I like it in my hands. Now that I do so many of these a week, I feel like it's the best way for me to do it. But after having done 2000, and scissor ways, my patients did fine before as well. Mm-hmm. And so this is not something that needs to be exclusively performed by surgeons or dentists or whatnot. I mean, I think that we can teach interested and capable providers, be they pediatricians or, you know, yeah, a, 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 I mean, whoever it would be, you know, they're, they're, are some courses out there, you know, there's a lot of laser courses out there, but Dr. Bahiri gives courses. There's many people that sort of give courses that you can start to get local people performing some of this. That might be, you know, overly optimistic because then you need local people who are interested and want to do that. But if, if they families are having problems and if the baby is not feeding, there are people that can address it usually in their state or if not, you know, within several hours drive. And that's, it's horrible to think that you have to drive that far, but that's where some of these local, for example, in California, California tongue-tie and lip-tie support, they have lists of sympathetic providers. So you don't waste your time that are vetted, that are known to do the proper job and to treat the patients properly. And so, you know, these are kind of not so secret lists, but there are lists that you can access by joining some of these groups. And that is in some cases the best if the baby or child is having problems. If they're not, you know, then that's good. But it's, you know, as a parent, it's nice to know, well, these are problems that could develop if they have a tongue tie and then to seek help in those cases. But it's hard, you know, it's not a very easy thing to do virtually. This, it requires a lot of in-person, you know, evaluation. So I don't have the best answer for that. And it may be that in some of these markets, like in the Bay Area, there are not that many people that did it. You know, people come to me from all over the place when I was up there, when I was in Fremont, which is kind of hard to get to, you know, quite frankly, because the academic centers maybe weren't offering the same response, right? When families were going for help. And so, you know, 
that's sad, you know, because an academic center should offer the top of the line care. And so I, I don't know what that says when families have to leave that to yeah. get proper care. I mean, when you've got UCSF and Stanford and Children's yeah. all in a, an hour drive, you should have some pretty phenomenal pediatric care. Right. But yet, you know, families came from all of those areas to, you mm-hmm. know, my little old office that was not a pediatric specialty office specifically. And so I was happy to provide that service. It just made me sad that families couldn't get care in some of these bigger centers or were told by bigger centers, lip ties never a problem or, you know, oh, it's not so bad or, oh, you just need a nipple shield or you just need to... It's a mild you know, thing. It's, it's mild. Yeah, whatever that means. So I don't know what to say to families that live far away. It's hard. I, I do think it's challenging because some of the dental providers, you know, they're not on health plans necessarily. And, and sometimes the costs incurred are higher there. We do try to have a cash pay price here that is fair, you know, for families to, you know, that includes everything if they don't have a plan that I happen to be on. And so if you can find someone who will work with you and not make it exorbitant, then that's the ideal situation, you know, and if a lactation consultant calls me and says, this family has nothing, they, you know, obviously, I take that into account and there's not going to be a baby who's not going to get care because the family has nothing like that's, that's not acceptable, but the economics of the world, it's kind of hard to find people that will do that. So you sometimes have to dig deep. Yeah. And I will say, it seems to be as I travel and meet with providers that there are these little hubs of care and then people travel from mm-hmm. hours around, yep. you know, whether it's San Diego has tongue center or here or, it's like it's weird you know santa barbara is a small little place that has a lot of retirees and mm-hmm. it's got some you know some families but it's not a very big place but we have people coming from all over the the region yeah. um here and in some cases other states that i'm always like why are you coming to me i just don't understand and you know it's just they aren't getting the care that they need locally and so it's interesting. It's it's good to have someone like me in a small place because at least it's kind of I'm in between Stanford and you know Valley Children's and UCLA or CHLA, all those places. I'm kind of in the middle, so it's it's good for the patients to have that. Um, I, I I think it's good for them that there's at least they don't have to go so far as these giant centers that are many many hours away. And having someone like Katrina Mitchell here is. Yeah. Truly outstanding, you know, from a a standpoint of my patients being held from a mental health standpoint, and on some of these other more medical sides of breastfeeding, this is the luckiest I've been on that front, you know, of any place I've ever been. So I am thrilled by what we can offer here in this small town, but most small towns don't have that. And that's, that's hard. Yeah. And as I think that as hopefully as more providers get experienced and get really passionate like you are and like some of these other providers are, we'll start to have more and more of these pop up. Yeah, right now, some of there's a lot of yeah, I mean, I I probably perform, you know, eight or 10 of these types of procedures on various age individuals every week. You know, I never thought I was going to be an ENT surgeon and this was going to be my my focus, you know, or the, the thing that I was known for. And I'd be very happy if 
patients didn't have to travel that far. There are many things I could do. I, I wish they could get the care that they needed, but they need me right now. And so that's my role. And that's where I can offer my greatest good, I feel. So that's a big reason why I focus on it. Yeah. But again, the future is recognizing it and treating it. Yeah. And ideally, that's locally. Okay. I think my my kind of final question for you would be how, obviously, we know you're an education junkie, but how do you like to stay current? Is it besides getting more degrees? Because that isn't always feasible for everybody. Are there other you know, things that you watch and read? And Yeah, it, it's, it's hard because much of this published literature coming out of my specialty is biased. designed in a biased way to prove a biased result. And, you know, it achieves its goal. <laughs> so I, I read all of the research that comes out, but I, of course, have to dissect what really the limitations of the study are. And also, I do belong to a number of social media groups of tongue-tied professionals. Some of them are scissor ones, and some of them are kind of more global groups, and some are more kind of laser-based or whatnot, so that I can learn about new techniques or new tools or, you know, new diagnostic criteria or new therapies that are adjacent Mm -hmm. or whatnot. And I think that's been really helpful is just kind of learning from other people's evidence. It is hard on some of those groups. You know, there are several big names that, you know, everybody knows. And sometimes they're not very nice to ENTs either. And it's like, I'm not a bad guy here, but they, I've been called out and, you know, mansplained as it were by some of these big wigs. And, you know, maybe in the past that would have really bothered me, but now I'll, I'll, you know, I'll answer back. And maybe that's not in my best interest on a global tongue tie scale, but I don't really care. It's just, it's hard to be me, honestly, because I don't get credibility, you know, that some of these other dentists or whomever else is. So I belong to, you know, a number of professional social media groups and whatnot. And I also go on various parent group, you know, ones as well. And I I try not to chime in. I just sort of watch and see what the families are saying, because some of the information that they are receiving is inaccurate. And I, you know, I want to know what people are reading. And then there are some groups on the internet that appear to be aiming to get the evidence at the crux of it that are actually anti, you know, it's kind of one of these ironic names of, you know, some of these evidence-based groups. And I, I want to see what they're saying too, because they, there are naysayer groups out there that are misportraying themselves. Okay. And so I just sort of try to see it in that front and see what's being published, but it's hard. You know, I don't necessarily have the time to go to meetings all the time for these types of things. And so a lot of those are more geared towards dentists, honestly, and they're not as useful for me in some ways. It's hard to stay current, but I just try to look a little bit at what's being said all the time. And I'm constantly learning in that way. I think that if you're angering them and getting, you know, responses, that that says something too, that that what you're doing is good, right? You're you're bringing light to something that they don't want light shed on. And that's why you're getting that response. But right. It's hard. I mean, nobody likes to be the bad guy, right? I mean, I don't like to be the bad guy. I don't think I'm the bad guy, but somehow in some circles I am. And so I guess that's part of getting older is I don't actually care like I used to, you know, I don't need to be friends with everybody. I just, I'm here to protect the diets and to, you know, move the ball to do the right thing for these people. And so that's, what it comes down to. And I don't care if I'm a black sheep of my own, 
you know, specialty or whatever, I'll call out my specialty, but, you know, I'll also call a dentist that are kind of not being reasonable either. And I don't care. It's, it's really just trying to find the path that I think is the best for the patients and for, from an ethical standpoint. Yeah. I mean, that can be from getting older, that definitely happens, but I think also you're getting, you're getting and seeing enough positive results from patients that it is helping you remember what's more important, right? That it doesn't, what they say out there doesn't really matter. It's what you're doing over here in your office and it's how you are with patients and it's how you're helping and making a difference in them. Right. I mean, I think that the proof continues to be when I see a baby that is less than 24 hours old because of the difference that I made with the prior baby, you know, or the sibling of this person or, you know, the sister-in-law's new baby, because, you know, they heard about it so much that this changed the game that just seeing that parents talk, that women talk, that whatever, and that they know that there's someone out there that may be able to help them. And so that propels me forward for sure. It feels good to know that that there are some people that are kind of weeping and thankful that, you know, someone listened to them about what's going on. But I mean, the prize is changing it so that it's not pockets where people can seek help and that they can get the help they need wherever they are. Right. And that would be, that would be amazing. I mean, that would be the future. I mean, I still kind of dream about eventually a world where we have more postpartum care, but even when a dyad goes to the pediatrician that they like see the pediatrician, the pediatrician leaves the office and then like in comes lactation. And if they're not breastfeeding, we can talk about infant feeding and bottles and approaching food or different things, but just to have more education and support and understanding of infant development for them because the parents are just not, the pediatricians can't do it all. Right. They, they have too many slots to fill. Yeah too short a time every day. Yeah, they, so. don't, they don't have the time for it. You know, it's hard. Like no one has the time, but there are some really great, you know, nonprofits and other things that, you know, locally we have new ones opening up here that are really going to change the game, I think for our patients. And um, I think it's in involving the community and not necessarily just in the pediatrician's office. I mean, it would be nice to have like the one stop shop where you have in one place, the, you know, the pediatrician and, and, the lactation folks and whatever body workers and any proceduralists and whoever would be all in one place. It's just the economics of medicine right now are such that that's really tricky. You know, I think the only way to do that is to get a lot of funding somehow. But that being said, you can recreate smaller amounts of this, or you can partner with community groups that get you, that get families the help they need. Right. And that's hopefully the future, at least in the near future, that we can do those things as we work towards bigger ones. Because it would be great to see that. Thank you so much for meeting with me today, Dale. This was really great. And I love learning more about how your practice is and and what you're seeing in the 10K world and, you know, your unique perspective from all your education. Well, thanks. This was really fun. And, you know, I just, I just think that there are interested people in my specialty that, that we will come around. It's just stay tuned. It's going to take a little bit more time, but little by little, we'll move there. (laughs) We'll get there. We will. Progress is coming. (laughs) So stay tuned. Thank you. When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change you. I hope that you enjoyed the podcast today and learned something new. If you know someone who would benefit from this podcast, please share.